Most occupational therapy professionals want to make a difference in any way possible. Obviously, we try to help each and every client that we see, but we also want to contribute to making changes on a larger level, helping to tilt the scales towards a world that is more just and more humane. And while one could argue that OTs have focused on equality and inclusion since the dawn of the profession, the concepts of occupational justice and occupational injustice have only really come to the foreground in the past few decades. And now seems like the right time to address the elephant in the room and ask, are these concepts serving as more than lofty theories? Are they helping to guide our actions or are we falling into the trap of all talk and no action? The journal article that we're going to review today offers a critique of the concept of occupational injustice, and the authors challenge us to expand how we think by using a new framework for approaching how we view our patients' lives. And after we break down the article, I'm going to patch in our guest, Antonia Sushek, to help us really tease out how this discussion about occupational justice and injustice applies to your particular practice. Let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we discuss new and influential OT research and pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this big topic of occupational injustice, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. You are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. I'll give you more details at the end of this episode on how you can sign in or sign up to take a test and generate a certificate. But bearing in mind that this can qualify as a continuing education course, I wanted to explicitly state our two learning objectives so you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to identify the primary critiques of occupational injustice. In our second learning objective is that you will be able to recall the basic pillars of capabilities theory. So let's begin by looking at our journal article, and then we'll bring on Antonia to discuss how these concepts play out in your practice. The article that we are discussing today is called Occupational Injustice, a Critique. It comes to us from the Canadian Journal of Occupational Therapy. It was published in 2017, and it is ranked 93rd on our list of the 100 most influential OT journal articles. So to break down this article, let's start where our authors start, which is why they wrote this paper. Now, this journal article is an opinion piece written by two prominent OT thinkers, and they open by arguing that even though the concept of occupational injustice has really permeated OT literature and largely been accepted into our educational frameworks, there's really been little scholarly inquiry as to whether this concept of occupational injustice is actually a useful concept. So they set out to write this paper with basically three goals in mind. The first was to present some of the inherent questions about occupational injustice, ones that have not really been formally acknowledged or addressed in literature in the past. 
The second goal was to question the utility or the usefulness of various vaguely defined occupational injustices. And third, it was to encourage occupational therapists to look at injustice as a violation of occupational rights and to ask OTs to consider identifying and addressing injustice by using a capabilities approach. So those are pretty hefty goals, and we're going to take those one at a time. And where they start is by just asking the question, what is occupational injustice? The authors certainly make defining occupational injustice sound like a pretty muddled journey. But here's the basic info. In 2004, occupational injustice was first defined as socially structured, socially formed conditions that give rise to stressful occupational experiences. And you can kind of imagine right off the bat how this definition is pretty easy to tear apart. Like, could sports be considered a type of occupational injustice because they can be considered stressful? It just doesn't make a ton of sense that a stressful occupation automatically equates with an occupational injustice. But more recently, occupational injustice has been defined as a deprivation or patterns of disruption that jeopardize children's development, create substantive health issues, and reduce an individual's lifespan. And again, you can kind of see how that definition, which is geared towards thinking about children, could also be critiqued like, does an injustice automatically have to reduce our lifespan? That feels like a pretty high bar for a qualification of injustice. But even though that core definition of occupational injustice is still pretty unclear. There are five main manifestations of occupational injustice that have been described in the literature and are something that you may have been taught in OT school. And these are occupational deprivation, occupational alienation, occupational imbalance, occupational marginalization, and occupational apartheid. The authors take these manifestations one by one and give the history of the concept and critique the definition and usefulness. I'm just going to outline some of the critiques of the first one, that occupational deprivation, and encourage you to read the rest of the article if you want to read the critiques of all five manifestations. But I'm thinking just from hearing the critiques of the first one, you can extrapolate that all five kind of have similar critiques. So occupational deprivation has been defined in several ways over the years, and all of these definitions were also followed by critiques from the authors. But an example of one definition was in 2004, occupational deprivation was described in the following way. Occupational deprivation may arise when populations have limited choice in occupations because of their isolated location, their ability, or their circumstances. And this definition brings up multiple questions, which in my mind range from almost comical to just absurd. Some of the questions that the authors asked was, does living in a rural environment result in occupational deprivation because you're in that isolated location? Or does limited physical or cognitive abilities inevitably lead to occupational deprivation? And they go on to say, To date, there appears to be no scholarly debate to achieve a clear and practical definition of occupational deprivation or to achieve consensus on its perceived parameters. 
nor have there been any guidelines of the assessment of occupational deprivation, nor suggestions for how the remediation of occupational deprivation may be identifiable. So that kind of gives you a sense of the critiques that they're offering around these five manifestations. And from there, they go into their kind of just big overarching critiques, which I felt like was really the heart of the article. The authors contended that the problem with not having clear agreed upon parameters of what constitutes injustice is that it sets up us as occupational therapy professionals to serve as kind of individual judges as to what is just and what is unjust. And as individuals, we of course carry some biases just as part of our human nature. And to make matters worse, the authors point out that the definitions we currently use were derived from only four authors' works. And of course, these authors have their own biases. They have a very specific and westernized view of justice, which leads us to just the main concern that rather than helping us thoughtfully address matters of justice and injustice, our current definitions and reliance on individual judgment may be making matters worse. In fact, this framework of occupational injustice may currently just be a framework to reinforce our own prejudices. Because one could easily take these concepts and use them to cast judgment on those who decide to make choices that are different from the choices that we would make. To use my own examples, we could look at a man who chooses to live alone in a rural area and we could cry, occupational deprivation. Or we could look at an autistic child who has a strongly preferred interest and cry, occupational imbalance. Or we could look at a person who chooses to spend her days caring for relatives in a multi-generational home and cry, occupational alienation. And that just obviously is not where we want to be or how we want to be thinking about things. So if that's the big critique, what's the alternative for us? And this is where the authors ask what I thought was a really good question of, how do we avoid making biased judgments of people without swinging too far in the other direction and taking on this attitude of anything goes or like a cultural relativism where anything that anyone chooses is okay, even if it's harming others. And this is where the article turns really constructive. And the authors offer the solution of focusing on human rights and occupational rights with a capabilities approach. So let's start with that focus on occupational rights. Instead of further confusing the situation by asking what type of occupational injustice has occurred, the authors recommend that therapists ask a much simpler question, which is, has a violation of human rights occurred? And human rights are a largely agreed upon set of rights. And the original 1948 declaration by the UN of human rights is still really considered foundational. If you haven't read that document ever or recently, I highly recommend that you check it out because it really does lay out human rights in a really clear way. And several of the rights that you'll see listed are related to well-being and health care. So it really just seems more productive to derive our understanding of injustice from this human rights framework. And thankfully, a lot of this work has already been done for us in that the World Federation of OTs does offer a position paper on human rights and couches occupational justice within that. So again, really big picture, the authors are asking us to move away from this tangled web 
of these five manifestations of occupational injustice and instead use this more established and agreed upon framework of human rights. But then they add one more layer to this that I thought was really interesting and gave me just a lot to chew on. And that was their advocacy for a capabilities approach. And the capabilities approach is another well-established theory. Multiple authors from different disciplines from around the world have been writing about this. And the capability approach adds this really important layer to considering what's just and unjust by asking us to consider this question. Does a person have the opportunity to achieve well-being on their own terms? Now, this question sounds subtle, but it makes a huge difference, mainly because there is a crazy variation in what people want for their own lives. And so this question frees us from making a value judgment on other people's choices, and it instead turns our focus to asking what opportunities are available to them or what are they capable of doing. So, for example, if a man is living in isolation in a rural home, is this because this is his only option and he has no access to a safe living space? Well, that might be an injustice because he does not have the opportunity to pursue well-being on his own terms because he only has this one maybe unsafe option available to him. But if the same man has multiple opportunities to move and live elsewhere and chooses to live in isolation, then that changes things. In this case, that is his choice to live in rural isolation and no injustice has incurred. Or another example would be that even though having adequate food and nourishment is considered a basic human right, someone may choose to fast or choose to do some kind of food-limiting cleanse in what they perceive to be a pursuit of wellness. And so this is not an injustice because they have the capability to eat a full meal and yet they choose not to. So in the conclusion to wrap things up and reiterate the authors concluded that defining occupational injustice as a violation of rights could provide a more clear definition, giving more guidance to OTs. And they advocated for using capabilities theory, which is a well-defined framework to identify and address violations of human rights. And one more time, I do want to refer you to that original text to read their arguments in full. I felt like I had to simplify, and a couple of the examples were my own. So I really do want you to check out this article. I know that this shift to thinking about justice in a new way sounds really subtle and maybe a little ethereal, but the more I chew on it, the more important I think it is. And I'm really excited to be able to discuss this with our guest today, Antonia Sushek. I was really thankful when Antonia agreed to talk about this topic because I wanted to talk about it with someone who is both good about thinking about matters of justice, but who is also a practicing OT, which Antonia is. I think that this is one of those topics that can feel far away from our practice. And I'm excited about her ability to connect these questions of justice with your day-to-day practice. So as a little background on Antonia, she completed her undergraduate studies in music and religion at St. Olaf College. Before becoming an occupational therapist, she worked to develop leadership skills in young people through cooperative play. She also organized restaurant workers, pursuing fair wages, paid sick leave, and equal employment. While earning her master's degree in occupational therapy from Rush University in 2014, 
Antonia was voted the student who best exemplifies the seven core values and attitudes of occupational therapy practice. Antonia has primarily worked in the acute care setting at level one trauma centers, but she also has some experience in outpatient hand therapy and acute inpatient rehab. Antonia recently moved back to the Pacific Northwest for the mountains and trees, and she is thrilled to work for an employer who prioritize healthcare for vulnerable populations. So without further ado, I am going to patch Antonia into our call. Welcome to the podcast, Antonia. It's great to have you. Thanks, Sarah. It's great to be here. I am really excited and honored to be talking with you about this topic, kind of for two reasons. One, because it's obviously just such an important topic, a timely topic, one that's important at all times. And second, on a personal level, it's incredible to me that 15 years ago, you and I were at this liberal arts college that was really steeped in social justice, and we were having those discussions. And it's just such a privilege to be here talking with you kind of about these same issues, but through the lens of occupational justice. Yeah, I think it's been a really interesting time to think about what justice looks like. It almost seems trendy these days to be talking about justice and diversity and inclusion and all these things. But I think we also have to remember that the people who have been living with imbalance or injustice have been trying to bring these issues to light for a long time, that people have never not been thinking about it. And in some ways, it's been our privilege as providers or as people in positions of power to not always have to think about them. So I think that's helpful to keep in mind, too, as we keep talking about what justice looks like for healthcare workers, for OTs, for us as people. Yep, definitely a long, long overdue conversations that are thankfully evolving and hopefully being refined and that we're moving in that positive future that I think that we all want as OTs. I wanted to start off just with a little bit of your personal story. I knew you in college as someone who I would say had a heart for justice. I think I would have pictured you as like doing something on like more of the macro level with (laughs) justice work. And I like kind of knew what you were doing after college and that aligned kind of with my perception of you. And then I heard that you went into OT school and I was like, huh, how did that happened? What was that trajectory? I actually don't know that story. So I wondered if you would share that with us to kick us off. Sure. I think you're right in some ways. After we graduated from college, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I ended up working for a service program that was affiliated with AmeriCorps, working with young people in Chicago who were maybe in in school suspension or came from backgrounds where they didn't necessarily have support in getting ready for college or came from high conflict areas. And part of my work was working with children to build cooperative skills, to build leadership skills. And I liked it, but I wasn't sure that that was really quite the right fit for me. After that, I worked briefly for a nonprofit organization that organized restaurant workers. We worked a lot on raising the tipped minimum wage, 
which at the federal level is still only $2.13 an hour, which is very low. We looked at equal employment as it pertained to race and gender. And it was really interesting to work on policy. I was living in Illinois at the time to go down to Springfield and talk to legislators and be a part of that organizing work in our community. It also came to, it wasn't a really great fit for both me and the organization. I totally believe in what they do. And I think that the work that they're doing is really, really important. But it wasn't something that I found myself thriving in. And so I took some time and thought back as I do, I made a spreadsheet about <laughs> the different things I'd enjoyed doing in my life and what I found interesting about them, what made me feel passionately about them. And I kind of looked for some themes. And one of the things I realized was that I really enjoyed working with people. I really liked hearing their stories and that I also had kind of a drive to figure out how things worked. And so for me, OT was a really good fit in some ways that we could learn anatomy and physiology, all that medical stuff. But then there was also the psychological component, the way that OT centers clients' interests and their own passions just has allowed me to be in contact with so many different kinds of people from different walks of life. And that is the part that really appealed to me. And I think that's what led me to OT. Antonia, I love that story so much because I think it starts to touch on so many themes that we're going to talk about today, that passion for hearing people's stories and how that really does contribute to justice. I think sometimes we're taught to think about justice in these big, overarching, large issues. And I love how this topic today is really going to bring it down to the level of listening to people's stories and helping them live lives of dignity, which sounds like that was part of what drew you to this profession. I want to turn to the article, and I had a couple just like big picture questions I wanted to kick us off with about the article. My first being, do you think that we should feel uncomfortable critiquing occupational injustice? I ask that because it's such an important issue. It's close to many hearts. And as I started reading this paper, I was like, should we be doing this? Should we be looking at it with such a critical lens as this paper did? Did you feel that at all? I think that everything should be open to loving critique. (laughs) I think that we have an amazing profession and that we try our best to embody these ideals, but we're certainly not perfect. And I think the fact that we're on our fourth practice framework means that there's always things that we could be improving. When you think about critique, it's about looking for clarity and improvement and not so much, you know, we're not nitpicking, we're not tearing things down, Mm -hmm. but taking our basic principles and making them relevant for the issues that we're dealing with today. And I think it's one of the only ways that we can continue to keep our profession relevant. There are things that Jane Addams or Eleanor Clark Slagle <laughs> would never have thought of, but now we find ourselves in this moment. How can we take our principles and our skills as occupational therapists and react to the situations that we see in front of us? Yeah, certainly. As I finished reading the article and 
did further reading, I did feel like it was a refinement in like pushing us to think more clearly and towards a more helpful framework, which we'll talk about a little bit in the podcast. My second big picture question was, do you think how we as OTs think about justice, does that affect how we show up in our practice? How important is this framework for how we conceive justice? I think that it's certainly helpful and that it can certainly shape our practice. I think that you could live your whole life being an OT and not think about justice, but I think that we might be doing a disservice to our patients because I think having a framework like this helps us put our practice in a little bit of a bigger picture. And I think it can help shape the way we understand the impact of the environment on our patients and our clients' health and well-being. If we think about some of our models of practice, like PEO, right? So you have your person, your environment, your occupation. I think that there's ways that we often can look at environment and occupation in a very limited scope, thinking about their immediate environment. Like, do you have stairs? Do you have a bathtub? (laughs) How far is it from your door to the sidewalk? But there's also the larger social environment, which ultimately has a large impact on people's health or can have a large impact on people's health. And I think that's where some of that framework can help. And I think it's helpful to think about if we want to make a larger impact that some of these societal issues or injustices that are happening impact more than one person at a time, right? It could be a whole group of people or a whole neighborhood or a class of person, whatever it is. And if we can work towards alleviating those things at the population or group level, that can ultimately impact a lot more people than just the person in front of us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I really liked what you said about how sometimes we can go through our days and even our careers without thinking about justice. But the reality is so many of the things we're taught as OTs are matters of justice and we're steeped in everything we see in our environment. So many times there's a justice level at which you could be thinking about things and the power of making those things more explicit for ourselves is, I think, really important for us. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think there's one other thing that I thought of too, is that sometimes I think we come across a lot of difficult situations in our work. And I think it can be really easy for people to take that personally when people don't have outcomes that we had hoped for, or when people have different goals than we do, and maybe their goals are for things that we don't personally approve of, even though as therapists, we want to support them in what they do. And I think it helps me when I think about how do we avoid things like burnout and feeling personally distressed by situations is thinking about justice can sometimes give us a framework about what's happening to kind of alleviate some of our moral distress. For example, when we get a little bit later on onto occupational rights and the capabilities approach, it's like, did we do everything that we could to help this person choose? And ultimately what they choose 
is up to them, but it's our job mm-hmm. to help facilitate the ability to choose. I totally agree. And let's just go there. Let's go right to capabilities theory because that was really helpful for me and a concept that I wasn't familiar with. Could you maybe just one more time for us restate your understanding of capabilities theory? I know it's like a big nebulous thing, but restate that and share a little bit more on why you think this theory is helpful for OTs. Sure. I wasn't familiar with this either. I hadn't really heard of the capabilities approach, but I also found it really helpful. There is one quote I found particularly helpful in the article, and it's in that third paragraph under that section. And it says, a capabilities approach to understanding human rights focuses attention not solely on the things that people do, but on the range of choices that are available to them. Identifying the social strictures that can effectively constrain not just the opportunities that are available to different people, but also the choices that people can envision and are equitably able to make. So my understanding is everybody has different choices, different ideas about what they want their life to look like. And it's not that one is particularly correct or incorrect, but how can we facilitate their ability to choose? So I like that the example that you gave in your breakdown about is a person living alone and an example of occupational deprivation. And for some people, it might be if that's mm-hmm. not by choice. And for some people, that's a fulfillment of their <laughs> ideal. They want to be by themselves. And that's okay. As long as that's what they want and they have the choice. I think that's something that as OTs, we can help facilitate their being able to do that safely. And so looking at the right for people to choose is that core part of a capabilities approach. The one thing I liked, really liked about that particular definition in the article is that part about the choices that people can envision. And I think that is something that feels really inspiring to me as a therapist about how can we help people envision what their life could look like, not just getting them back to a functional baseline, but how can we really help people envision what thriving could look like for them and help facilitate ways that they have the ability to truly make that choice to do it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was really struck by that sentiment in the article, partially too, because we talked about this in our last podcast, Rafi, who I interviewed, said that part of his eval is he asked people in six months, what would it look like for you to be happy and thriving? And that plays so well into this capabilities theory and this understanding of justice that people have opportunities to choose the life that's meaningful to them. And I agree that that is really freeing as OTs. It's not up to us to make choices for people, to make sure they make the best choice. It's our responsibility to make sure people have opportunities and to be listening to what is meaningful to them and help people get there. That's a whole different ball game than thinking we're the expert over their lives. <laughs> First <laughs> yeah. of all, that's a lot of pressure. And second of all, that's not true. But I yeah, think that <laughs> I think sometimes we can fall into those traps of thinking that. Yeah, I definitely agree, especially in a medical type setting. We feel like we're supposed to have all the answers and we certainly 
don't. And people are very much the experts in their own lives. I see our role as providing people with tools and information so that they are able to make those choices for themselves. And if they have specific things they want our help with, obviously we should help them. But I think it is very freeing to say we don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to know out of thin air what a perfect life for this person would be. You just Mm -hmm. have to ask them. Yeah. And then if they're generating those answers themselves, they're going to be more invested in the process and it's going to be more fulfilling for both parties for them and then for us as therapists. I want to move on soon to some more practical things, but was there any other concepts from the article that you wanted to highlight? I know there was quite a bit in there, either about occupational injustice or the focus on occupational rights. I think that I'd like to go back really briefly just to this idea of envisioning people's futures, Mm. because I think that One thing that ties it well with this idea of justice is that people aren't always able to envision their futures in a practical way because they don't always see examples of what that could look like. For example, I follow this woman on Instagram. (laughs) Her name is Ashley Harris Whaley. She's a disabled person. She has cerebral palsy. She's also a speech language pathologist. You can follow her at Disability Reframed. I think she's an excellent resource. She does a lot of teaching and resources around disability. And she talked briefly a couple of weeks ago about her journey towards motherhood and how as a young person, she had difficulty envisioning what being a disabled person and a mother looked like because she didn't have examples in popular society or in her personal life about what that could look like. And I think this kind of ties into one of the things that we can do on a organizational level or on a macro level about being more just as therapists is really centering the voices of people who have the lived experience, both for themselves and also for other people who might be going through a similar situation. That could look like a lot of different things. It could look like peer mentorship or having a patient advisory committee or even taking the time to hear about these stories and then having that information to share with our patients and clients if they're interested. Because I think somebody who's been through it has so much more information and support to offer than I might as somebody who's never been in many of these situations. Finding those resources and centering those stories can be a really great way that we can become more just as organizations or companies or work groups. And that can end up being a really valuable resource for our patients and hopefully improve outcomes as well. Yeah, I love that because I never would have thought of like connecting someone with a national organization as something related to justice. But this capabilities theory and this framework for understanding justice makes these actions that can be seemingly small, gives them new meaning and new importance to help connect people to have a vision of what their story could look like. That's really beautiful. And I just love the new language that these frameworks are giving us for that. 
I want to start getting practical about what we can be doing as OTs in our day-to-day. We've touched on some things already. And I want to lead with the idea of self-reflection and self-critique, which came up quite a bit in the article and related readings. And I guess I want to ask, do you think that self-reflection is essential to pursuing justice? Yes. I think that self-reflection, honestly, not just in this idea of pursuing justice, but also for ourselves as therapists in general. I think you talked in some of your previous podcasts about what a therapeutic use of self is and how do we have these other models about how we relate to patients. And I think we have to bring a lot of self-awareness to our own biases and our own assumptions about what the best choice is for someone else. Reading through these articles helped me think too about how some of the things that we don't intend to do can still cause harm. When we talk about justice, we are often talking about imbalances of power. I really liked one of the articles that you brought up under secondary research from the Canadian Journal, the Doing Occupational Justice a central dimension of everyday occupational therapy practice. One of the areas that they were talking about was this idea of microaggressions where you may be interacting with somebody and your intention is not to harm and not to put somebody else in a position of injustice, but through ignorance or just lack of awareness, there's a lot of times that we can perpetuate stigma or perpetuate biases that we may have for ourselves. And I think doing that self-reflective work helps us to see how much of this is what I personally think because of my own background about what is best for this person and how much of this is truly what's best for this person. You know, how can we have a collaborative approach? Or when somebody brings up an idea that we're taken aback by or a choice that we're like, ooh, I don't know if I would do that. I think it just helps to be self-aware about what we're bringing to the table as therapists, especially because in a healthcare setting, we are in positions of power that can really affect our interactions with our clients. Yeah, and it's always humbling to self-critique because that means part of that process may be looking back at our past and wishing that we had done things differently. And part of that is recognizing that we all have bias and part of our work is to try to make that more explicit for ourselves before we can begin working through that. So part of this work of trying to be more just how we show up and supporting our clients is being self-reflective and even critiquing ourselves. What are some other ways that you would say that we could be more just as we show up for our work with clients? I think that there are a lot of things that we can do. Being client-centered, acknowledging that people are experts in their own lives, developing our listening skills, learning ways to just get people to talk about what they envision for their lives. That really collaborative goal-setting process at its most basic level, that's what occupational therapy is. And I think a lot of those things that we're already doing. So we should probably give ourselves a little bit of credit. (laughs) Yes, Um, It's not all negative when we're talking about (laughs) justice, right? And I think there's other things that we can do. Reading and learning from people in marginalized communities. That could be 
a lot of different things, maybe people from a different racial group or people who are transgender or people who are disabled. There's a lot of different options, but I think doing that reading and self-reflective, like you said, a lot of that can be beneficial just in the way that we interact with other people. Yeah, I think that's going to be my biggest takeaway from the article is just how this individual work that we're doing with clients and so many of the things that we've been taught, these really are matters of justice and ideally pushing us to a more just world. Like each person that can have opportunities in front of them and choose what's most meaningful to them, like that is tipping the scales towards justice. I just love this new framework for thinking about what we've already been doing. So that's our work on that individual level. But I don't want to leave this conversation without also talking about larger systems levels. And from what your perspective, we as occupational therapists can be doing to nudge our systems towards being more just. I definitely think that there's things that we can do on all different levels. We talked a little bit already about the personal level. I think on an organizational level, some things might be the idea we brought up earlier about an advisory committee of people who have been through experiences. Some hospitals do Schwartz rounds, which are interdisciplinary rounds focusing on social emotional issues around caregiving. I think they're great places that can give the opportunity to talk about what a just outcome could look like. If you maybe run a program or own your own company or are part of that management level, one possibility might be taking a look at your mission statement or your vision statement. Does it reflect who you want to be as an organization? Having that organizational level framework gives people a common language to talk about how do we want to reflect our values in the ways that we interact with our clients? And I think having it in a written document gives your employees explicit permission to talk about those things. It gives them organizational backup if issues occur and they want to talk about how justice is or is not being served in the situation. And I don't think that things certainly change overnight, but it gives us something to strive for. Similarly to how we help patients and clients envision what a thriving life would look like. We have opportunities to put down on paper what a thriving organization would look like, what a justice organization would look like. And I think having those conversations on a management level can really drive the feel of your organization and can help guide your hiring practices. It can help guide who you work with as an organization, maybe other vendors or your productivity standards or the kind of equipment you buy, things like that. I think having those guiding documents can be really valuable in that sense. And then on a more community level, once you've had the opportunity to talk to people about the challenges that they're facing and the things that are stopping them from being able to make those choices, we can kind of look at, are those things more systemic? Are those things that need to change on a policy level, on a community level? Because there's so many things that can impact people's health. There might be things like a certain area has a high incidence of asthma because of air pollution from power plants or 
we see developmental delays in an area because of lead in the water or something about the transportation infrastructure inhibits people from getting to appointments on time or making appointments when the weather's bad out or whatever it is. Sometimes when you look at those things on an individual level, things can look like noncompliance or they can look like poor parenting, just any number of things. But when you look at them on a community level, you realize that there are other structural challenges that are affecting the ability for people to make the choices that they would otherwise make for themselves. So I think being involved in the community means sometimes being involved in political work or being involved with interdisciplinary organizations that are working on these things. There's a lot of non-medical people that are working on social issues. And I think there's a lot of overlap in the opportunities that we have to say, you know what, I'm not just advocating for people as a therapist. I'm advocating for people as a neighbor, as a community member. And on a larger level, on a macro level, that can look like policy change. It can look like advocacy with your state government or the federal government. And I think the AOTA, your state associations, OTPAC, you know, there's a lot of good resources out there if you want to be involved on kind of a larger level. Yeah, I totally agree. And I was thinking earlier today about how we're so privileged to be a part of so many stories of patients and lots of times these larger issues that you're talking about can feel abstract or far away and hard to tackle. And I can definitely see part of our roles as therapists and this advocacy work is bringing forth those patient stories and making it feel more personal, helping people connect those stories to our neighbors who are being impacted by that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think that's what moves people to change mm-hmm. is hearing those real stories, seeing that real impact. You're absolutely right in that we're in a unique position that we have the opportunity to meet with so many different people and to hear their challenges and their stories, and also to have the education and the resources to be able to look into this wider picture. Mm-hmm. To your point, we love the spreadsheets and we love the stories. So that really does uniquely position us, I think, in this advocacy work. So the last kind of big picture question I want to ask before we head into our rapid fire was how do you hope to see the concept of justice guiding the occupational therapy profession as we move into the future? I think that there's a couple different things. One, I think that occupational therapy is a really unique profession and it has so much to offer, but I don't think that we always claim that. I think that in many settings, we don't always have the language to say, this is how OT is special. This is how what we do is really valuable. And I think thinking about justice and thinking about capabilities and rights can kind of give us a framework to talk about how what we have to offer is valuable to our clients in a way that I don't always see other professions doing it. I think that we have that background of helping people put into words what they envision for their lives. And I think that we have the skills and the tools to help people make that happen for the most part. That's something really special and really valuable. As much as we learn about it in school and 
have it in the back of our minds. I don't think that's something that we do a good job of articulating in the wider space, especially with other healthcare professionals. You know, I love my physical therapy colleagues, but we're not PT light, right? We don't, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we have something unique and I don't think that we always do a good job of articulating it. So many of the ideas that were brought up in this article have really helped me at least think about other ways that we could present our profession. But it really requires that willingness to engage as a profession. I think that it requires us to put ourselves out there to be proud of being occupational therapists and that willingness to be involved in the wider community, not just as people, but as OTs. I think on another practical level, thinking about how justice can guide the development of OT in the future, I think that we need to diversify our workforce. Mm. And I think that really needs to be reflected in our faculty. Mm. I think there's a lot of great OT schools. And I'll say when I was applying to school 10 years ago, here I am with the spreadsheets again. I made a spreadsheet of every OT school in the country and I went through their website and I took off the list every OT school where the faculty were exclusively white women. I'm not saying this to say there's anything wrong with Mm -hmm. those programs or with white women. I love you all. But (laughs) I think that it speaks to the ways that we sometimes have found ourselves in a more narrow pool of experience than sometimes is what's best for our patients. I think in the times that I myself have been a patient, I found really valuable people who had lived through similar life experiences. It's not that other people were not valuable or that other people didn't have really great ideas or things to share with me, but there was something different about people who could understand my life experiences. And I think that We really need to think about that when Mm -hmm. we are looking at school admissions and faculty that we hire or looking at how do we support people who are going through our programs or our student or fieldwork students or whatever it is. How do we support them in both their unique challenges and their unique abilities? Because it will only make our profession stronger. And I think that willingness to continue to critique our profession in a loving way is what we really need to keep moving forward as a profession and to keep being relevant. Because I do think that we have something really special and we have a lot to offer people. But I always think that we could be doing a better job. Yep. Yeah, I love both your points, both this idea that we have our own biases and we need to be wary of putting ourselves in schools or organizations that seem like they're just going to reinforce those biases where everyone looks like us. And that's really powerful to be able to choose where we go to school and where we work. And lots of us have that privilege. This really encouraged me to be thoughtful about that. And then your first point to how this language of justice could help us connect our occupational therapy work more with our colleagues and more with our patients just this idea that every client we work with deserves to have this life of dignity on their own terms. That's what we're doing in OT, but sometimes we don't use that justice language. That to me is a little stronger and a little more, something more to rally people around. And I definitely think that we have that potential as OTs. We are just scratching the surface here on this topic of justice and 
we could talk about this for a long time. And there's, I'm sure, lots of things that we didn't do justice to. No pun intended there. (laughs) But I want to move into our rapid fire questions before we wrap up our time. Are you up for that? Sure. What is the first sentence that you usually say to patients? Hi, my name is Antonia. I'm here from Occupational Therapy. Do you know what that is? (laughs) That's good. What is the last sentence you usually say to a patient at the end of a session? I usually just try to ask and see if they have any questions or anything I can get for them before I go. What's your favorite assessment? Ooh, I really like the practical assessments. I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from people just seeing them actually do things like making tea or making a bowl of oatmeal. That said, I can probably administer a mocha in my sleep. Yeah. (laughs) And what's your favorite OT intervention to deliver? I've recently been really into adaptive childcare. I've had the opportunity to do that a few times with some patients in rehab who are going to be going home at a wheelchair level and who are also going to be new fathers. So I think it's a really exciting and practical thing to be doing with people. What's something you've read recently that has inspired your OT practice? Senator Tammy Duckworth recently came out with a memoir called Every Day is a Gift. And I think Mm. she has had a fascinating life. And she also talks a little bit about her recovery process at Walter Reed, working with PT and OT. And how do you hope a patient feels after your initial visit with them? I hope they feel hopeful. More than anything, I hope that people feel heard, that they feel hopeful that we can work together to figure out how they can thrive. Mm-hmm. And maybe a little tired. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, Antonia, I just want to thank you for the conversation today such a privilege to be talking about these issues of justice, just in the context of the larger conversations of justice that have been happening and will be happening. And I look forward to continuing this work with you. Thank you, Sarah. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think it'll give us, give me, you know, a lot to think about when I go back to my work. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you. Wow, you all, I think you could probably hear me actively processing and really reframing how I now think about our work as OTs as justice work. And I usually don't recommend further reading, but the article Doing Occupational Justice and the book Creating Capabilities are both really excellent resources to keep exploring this topic. And just like our article, this conversation just really felt like a little sliver of these larger, really important conversations happening around justice. And I look forward to continuing to discuss these topics on the podcast with you. If you are interested in earning a certificate for your time today, what you are going to do next is head to otpotential.com and either sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. It is currently only $49 to have access to all of our courses and the many resources in the club. So if you are not a member, I just highly encourage you to join us in there. And to wrap up, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. I hope as always that this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.